So it's always uplifting, heartening, um, energizing to sit up here and look out there and see people that care about their lives. They care about what they do in their life, expressing in their world. Sometimes I get to feel alone, like I'm the only person who thinks the way I do or who uh, reacts to the harshness of the world the way I do. But what pulls me back is that we all have a chance to just sit with what is. And so it's such a privilege to be with people that have that same appreciation that we can just sit. The phrase is, don't just do something, sit there. It rings true for me. So tonight, I'm going to say a few things about the Eightfold Path, and in particular, the fifth and sixth steps on the Eightfold Path. And this is because this talk tonight is part of a series of four. The first started about the first two steps on the path. Actually, the uh, beginning of the Eightfold Path as the Four Noble Truths. So I'm just going to take a minute to refresh us a little bit. Let me first of all ask how many of us were here for the first night of this talk, which was Inez Friedman talking about the first two steps. Great. So about half of us. And uh, one other question is how many of us were here last week when Daniel um, Bowling talked about right action and right speech. How many of us were here? Ooh, more. It's building. It's great. So just a quick refresher. The Four Noble Truths are among the first teachings of the tradition that we follow, the 2,500-year tradition that began with the man that uh, we refer to as the Buddha. Historically, he was... Uh, prince <clears throat> and he lived his life for the first 30 or so years as Siddhartha Gautama and he had a, a very uh, nurturing childhood and a very rich young adulthood and so had a feeling uh, as he approached his adulthood that really everything was great and right and wonderful and then he encountered some things that were difficult to explain. He encountered a person who was sick, a person who had died. He was in the presence of a person who had declined and had difficulty. He'd not seen people before because he, his father had protected him and kept him in a very secluded environment. He had not seen people before that were ill and declining and dying. And then he saw uh, a monk, a mendicant, 
uh, renunciate, a person who had declared uh, his life to be for a spiritual path. And that set him on a direction that led to 40 years of teaching. The beginning of the teaching was after a remarkable enlightenment experience. And I'm going to read something that comes from 2,500 years ago tonight that talks a little bit about that enlightenment, what it was like. So he had this enlightenment experience and then he felt compelled to teach. Actually, at first he felt compelled not to teach because he was struck with how uh, unreceptive people seemed and how harsh the world was. And then, uh, who knows, from his heart, something drew him to wishing to teach. And so he sought the first five people that he could think of that would even listen to him. And they were companions that he had had not long before. And he had left them. He didn't uh, wish to choose their path in life. But they were still together. And so he gathered them together and he taught them the Four Noble Truths. And uh, the insights that they had were electric. They just, um, they realized that this was insight that had come from direct experience of how life works and how life forms. And so the first five were very enthusiastic. Number six was a person that just came walking along, uh, a man named Yasa. And Yasa had been a prince also. And so he, they, they sort of knew each other by, by their high background. And Yasa was dissatisfied and, and wanted to learn what this prince had found in his spiritual quest. And then Yasa's father showed up. <clears throat> and so Yasa's father was really not a good candidate for this because he was a merchant. And he didn't really intend to follow the mendicant homeless path that the first six were enraptured with the first five and then Yasa wished to follow a homeless path of a, mon a monastic. And so number seven then was Yasa's father, a merchant. <clears throat> and Yasa's father sat down with the Buddha and was also struck by the truth of the teachings. But he said, you know, uh, for me, being in the world is my way of expressing. It's, it's what's important to me. It's how I want to live my life. And <clears throat> so from that time on, there was lay teaching. And after that, in the 40 years, there were many thousands of people the Buddha touched. And what he's most famous for is for being at the heart of the Sangha and in those days, the Sangha meant the, the mendicants, the monks, the ones that were renunciates, that didn't have a home, that uh, lived on alms, and that uh, were 
completely vulnerable to the spiritual path. But they were supported by a lay group, Yasa's father being the first of the lay group. And it's so interesting to me how that 2,500-year tradition rings for us now, but so many of the people that it rings for are lay people. The monastic path uh, is interesting, and I think our, our tradition, our teachings are vitalized by having monastics uh, in our tradition. But so many of us choose to lead lives out in the world. <clears throat> That is our spiritual expression. Speaking for myself, I uh, thought a lot about a monastic path. There was a period of my life where I suddenly was alone. I had had a wife and two kids, and uh, and a very compelling uh, family experience. And then my wife got sick and died, and my two kids went off to college because they were moving along in their lives. And all of a sudden I was alone. And I thought a lot about how being alone uh, would fit with the way I wanted to lead my life. And I remember one of the powerful teachings that I ran across at the time was about um, wherever you are, embrace it. And if you're alone, embrace your aloneness. Go into the aloneness. Let it be. And so there was an inward-drawn period of my life that lasted a few years, and I did uh, maybe four months of each of those years on retreat. And it was a wonderful experience. For some reason, I didn't choose to be alone, but there I was. And so the retreat experience was there to, um, for me to go into, for me to be inside of, for me to be um, part of. And I'm happy to say that I'm uh, not alone still. I have a wife and I still have my two kids who are on their own. And I have some lovely stepkids that are adding wonderful things to my life. So I'm kind of on an outbreath now. And it's interesting for me to think about how my life has gone totally unpremeditated. I didn't expect this. I didn't plan it. But all of a sudden, there was an indrawn period, and, and then now there's this out-expressing period. The Eightfold Path, to me, is like that. Inez spoke on the first Monday evening, two Monday evenings ago, about the beginning steps. Right view and right intention. And she said that these two are really at the heart of our practice. Everything in our life starts with a view and an intention. So it's a foundational experience. 
then from view and intention there's a movement view and intention being a refinement of our mind a chance to refine and develop that mental quality the movement is through action and speech and livelihood three of the steps of the Eightfold Path that take us outward, that take our expression out into the world. And so the first two are called sort of the development of wisdom or the development of the mind. And then you heard last week from Daniel about action and speech, being aware of our action and speech, teachings being um, that the precepts, being harmless, being um, making sure that our speech is gentle and soft and appropriate and timely and sensitive, making sure that our actions come from a sense of, of our freedom, moving toward our freedom and others' freedom. So as we move out then... <clears throat> We take action, we speak. Tonight, I'm going to talk about sort of a flowering of those four into the fifth, which is right livelihood. <clears throat> livelihood was always a big challenge for me. I remember when I was in college thinking about what in the heck can I do to make some money? My first job was working for a construction company during summers in between college. And there had been a huge storm in Colorado. I lived in Denver and lots of mud had washed into people's basements up in the foothills, up toward the mountains. And there was a, a um, area of new homes. That the basements were filled with mud and, and wire and blocks of wood and nails and screws and anything that could wash in. So my job was to clean out those basements. So that's what I did for that summer. And I remember the first day when I was given the shovel and shown the basement. And, uh, you know, there was no light down there. And it was cold and wet. And, and it was hopeless. I mean, I, I went down there and, you know, it was like five feet deep in, in mud and muck and and all kinds of stuff. So as I started shoveling, I had this sort of desperate feeling of, you know, this is overwhelming. This is just beyond me. And one of the uh, construction company crew took a look at what I was doing with my shovel and realized that I was never going to make a dent in this and uh, rented a diaphragm pump. It's a pump that has a large rubber diaphragm and an arm that drives the diaphragm up and down. And every time it goes up, it sucks. And this pump can handle pieces that big of wood and cement and mud and water and whatever. And in the space of about a week and a half, we had all those basements clean. And what an experience it was to, to face this hopelessness in the beginning and then have success. And so when I looked out at the world, at the, the world of making a living, 
I thought, ah, this is, has that same quality of hopelessness. But a step at a time, and before I knew it, I owned my own company. And I had the privilege uh, for about 15 years of running a company here in the valley that uh, we got up to eight employees at one point. And we provided services to Intel and Hewlett Packard and IBM, uh, Sun Microsystems. And it was a, a fabulous learning experience. The teaching about right livelihood is that we, we must be careful as we approach it that right livelihood must lead to a result that is beneficial to all. That uh, it's kind of a concept of win-win. That we shouldn't quickly rush to conclusions until we've been aware of the impact of what we're doing. And so the livelihood process for me was in the beginning about having a place to make an economic return. But as I got farther into it, I realized that there was a lot about my personal growth that if I were to be expressive in the world in a way that I wanted to be, that livelihood was the way to do it. There's a piece of the teachings that was inspiring to me. It talks about the Buddhists, the Buddha's awakening. And from the texts, we hear this. How can I deal with the world? The world is not soft. There's death, there's sickness, there's aging, there's loss. But possibly there's a path. It's just as if a man traveling alone a wilderness track were to see an ancient path, an ancient road, traveled by people of former times. He would follow it. Following it, he would see an ancient city, an ancient capital inhabited by people of former times, complete with parks, groves, and ponds, walled, delightful. He would go to address the king or the king's minister, saying, Sire, you should know that while traveling along a wilderness track, I saw an ancient path. I followed it. I saw an ancient city, an ancient capital, complete with parks, groves, and ponds, walled, delightful. Sire, rebuild that city. The king or king's minister would rebuild that city so that at a later date, the city would become powerful, rich, and well-populated. In the same way, I saw an ancient spiritual path, an ancient road traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones of former times. 
And what was this ancient path, this ancient road? The one of being self-awakened? Just this, the noble eightfold path, right view, right resolve or right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. I followed that path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of how life works. The moving of life through me, the arising of awakened life within me. So from 2,500 years ago, this feeling of the, the earth, the world, presenting challenge. But knowing an ancient path, the ancient path that Inez talked about in the beginning, about setting a clear vision, having a clear understanding, and using intention, using intention that leads toward freedom, taking action that supports harmlessness, that supports freedom for others, speaking in a way that's mindful of who you're with, what the impact is, being gentle, caring, leading to freedom, practicing a livelihood that allows people to grow, to change, to to live more fully and more freely. And using effort, the effort not so much of force or of energy, but the effort of bringing your full self. There's one kind of effort where we see a basement that's filled with muck and we have to get it out of there. That takes a certain kind of effort. But there's another kind of effort, which is to be uh, to make sure that your input, your your world uh, is harmonious. To make sure that you stay with harmonious people, that you interact with uh, the world in a way that there's a building. Um, Gill uses the example of play, that there's an energy of play that's almost effortless. And that, in fact, you get energy from play. We can think about uh, experiences we've had where we've played, uh, say, a, a game of softball. And it's been a fun time. And we, at the end of that game, we've known people more. We've expressed ourselves more. So how do we have that energy in our livelihood? How do we have that energy that builds on itself, that isn't pushing, isn't forcing? So I'd like to take a minute 
to just be compl- contemplative again <clears throat> and have us think about energy that is renewing and is enlivening. So where in our lives do we encounter energy that's renewing and enlivening? So let's just sit for a minute and I'm going to read something as we sit and then I'm going to offer us a chance to do some expressing with each other. So we'll just settle and let that thought of renewing, vitalizing energy kind of reverberate where in our life, particularly our livelihood, that part of our life where we interact with others and where we generate an income and increase where in our livelihood do we experience that energy that upliftment that vitalizing energy This is from Wendell Berry. Good work finds the way between pride and despair. It graces with health. It heals with grace. It preserves the given so that it remains a gift. By good work, we lose loneliness. We clasp the hands of those who go before us and the hands of those who come after us We enter the little circle of each other's arms and the larger circle of the lovers whose hands are joined in a dance and the larger circle of all creatures passing in and out of life who move also in a dance to a music so subtle and so vast that no one hears except in fragments. Good work finds the way between pride and despair It graces with health. It heals with grace. So we all seek to do good work. The good work, a model for it or a a touchstone for it is that energy. When we do good work, we have that energy, that, that renewal. We're not depleted. We can go on with more energy. So I'd like to invite us to take about four minutes to get together with one other person, partner up in pairs, and take a chance to share a little bit about this experience of reviving, revitalizing energy in our livelihood. Have we found it? Do we think we know where it is? Are we looking for it? 
So go for it. I'll ring the bell um, when we're about one minute away. Make sure that both of you have a chance to speak and use the practices of right speech. Introduce yourselves. Exchange names. Enjoy yourselves. Thank you for that. So let's just take a few minutes to hear from uh, several of your groups. And what I'd like to do is just have you think about the practice of right effort, having effort that leads to freedom for us and others, and right livelihood, that livelihood that uh, energizes us and energizes others. And uh, give us just a thumbnail of... uh, what your experience of that is, what your understanding, what your thoughts are about that. We'll just uh, do a little bit of that and then uh, we'll continue. So who volunteers? Let's see a brave person back there and say a name, please. Tom? Hi, Tom. So as you put it out, you feel it back again. Huh? Yeah. Do you ever feel depleted being your sunshiny person in the morning? That's the soy chai it's all about. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well said. Okay. Doug? Doug? Well, what I do is uh, sometimes I donate to a charitable organization. Seems to bring bring a lot back to me, and I've been practicing this a little bit. And some of the stuff you talked about, I read in uh, a book by Gil Fronsdale. A lot of it until you got to livelihood. That's where I was. You know, that's where I'm at. Where I haven't started reading yet. And um, a lot of it's about. What I read was a lot about it. It was about um, helping others, and because like if you keep everything to yourself, you know, then there's just all you have is yourself, and there's no there's no reward in it, you know. But if you sacrifice some of yourself for others and help give give of yourself for others, goodwill stuff and help. You know, um, you know, just help other people and let other people into your life and share what you have that is good in your life. Then it helps you get out of yourself and it brings you like blessings or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
Nice. To give, to give is uh, actually it's one of the earlier steps in practice. Uh, we think of our practice as being centered around meditation, but historically and in many Buddhist countries, meditation only comes later. It comes after years and years of a practice of generosity. Um, and maybe as a lay person, a lot of times uh, lay people are giving to others and also giving to people that are practicing a spiritual life. And after years and years of doing that and studying and preparing, then they're ready for meditation. Yeah, and, then you, and then you kind of got to know how much to give too. You can't. You got to. And then sometimes I, I would. I kind of withdraw back into myself, so my concentration, my meditation within myself. <clears throat> you know, trying to have a balance. You know, and I love it. Here, give a little there, and then it works. I feel like, like I'm putting myself out too much, then I'll take back into my my own focus. You know. So it's a good it's a good sign of right practice if we if we feel a warm heart and if we have energy and uh, yeah and that's a good example how our giving can lead to a warm heart and energy or it can if it's out of balance it can stretch us in ways that we're not ready to be stretched well Maureen has uh, the microphones so. Back there, Maureen, would you take a microphone? Thanks. Maybe we need the slider up a little. Try again. So it's a good sign that we get that energy. <clears throat> so thank you. Uh, I, there's more that we can say, and uh, so let's um, let's let the uh, what we've heard so far be our way of speaking as a group. So thank you all for participating in that. The teachings about energy and livelihood um, are the 
the peace that can give us a model when we're confused or lost, when we feel like our path is unclear. For 2,500 years, we've had models that we can go back to and they've been refined over time. I want to read one that is a compilation, a sort of a distillation. And then at the end, I have some yellow sheets that I'll put out. I'm not sure if you uh, previous nights have had this summary. It's called the Eightfold Path Summary. And it's on two pages, kind of the essence of the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which is the Fourth Noble Truth. But I want to read something that Joseph Goldstein wrote. He says, we must begin. We must begin wherever we are. We work with the precepts as guidelines for harmonizing our actions with the world. The precepts being not harming, not stealing, not lying, not using intoxicants, and not being sexually inappropriate. We use these precepts. We live with contentment and simplicity that does not exploit other people or the planet. We work with restraint in the mind, seeing that it's possible to say no to certain conditioned impulses or to expand when we feel bound by inhibitions and fear. We reflect on what we do in the direction of our lives, where it is leading and where it is being developed. We cultivate generosity and love, compassion and service. All of this together becomes our path of practice, our path of livelihood and effort. So next week, we're going to hear about the last two steps of the Eightfold Path. The step number seven, which is right concentration, and number eight, which is right mindfulness. And as we move forward, I like to think of an interpretation of the eight steps that it's a refinement So that when we began with right understanding and right intention, if we always begin with that, then we move forward, our expression goes forward, and then with right concentration and mindfulness, we we make sure that there's a purity, a harmony, a resonance, a, uh, a trueness to ourselves, and a trueness to freedom and liberation for others and ourselves. And so it's a, uh, in the ancient tradition, the wisdom is the beginning. The practice of uh, right livelihood, right action, right speech is thought of as being uh, morality, but in the expression of moving out into the world. And then, right, concentration and mindfulness is, is the refinement. It's the, it's the part that unifies, that makes it, uh, makes all a whole, 
so that we uh, we stay clear, we stay simple, and we stay uh, true to ourselves. So that's where we're going with this. In the four weeks, uh, you will have then heard from four of us. And then from then on, it's practice. And practice to me is a gift. I remember one of the teachings that captured me so much was when the, the uh, historical Buddha uh, spoke from the heart and said how precious it is to be alive, how precious it is to have a body. Because when we have a body, we can take action. We can, we can take our wisdom and our intention and move it forward. We can touch others and be touched by, by others. How precious it is to have physical life in this world. And then he continued and he said, how precious it is to hear the Dharma. Think of how few people hear the Dharma. And having heard the Dharma, be touched by it. And being touched by it, practice it how few who hear it are actually touched by it and how few who are touched make the effort, make the, um, the intention, make the space in their lives to put it into practice. So that's what we're about. We have all the tools. We have freedom as the goal. And we have a very confusing world to clarify, to harmonize, to interact with. Lots of opportunity, lots of basements filled with mud and unthinkable things that have to be moved. So let's just sit for another period and I'd like us to think about the unity that comes from wisdom, intention, action, speech, livelihood and effort. All of this in our lives moving from a starting point, having an intention, moving forward, giving expression to our hearts and our minds in the world, touching others, being touched. So as we sit, notice out of all of this movement, all of this giving, all of this moving forward, that the path has a unity. And notice where that unity is for us.
a writer and teacher, Bell Hooks, an African-American woman who went to the University of Santa Cruz, <clears throat> studied writing, became a professor, talked about it this way. She said, I like that the point of convergence of liberation, of theology, of mysticism, of engaged Buddhism, all of this is the sense of love that leads to commitment and to involvement with the world and not turning away from the world. A form of wisdom that I strive for is the ability to know what is needed at a given moment in time. To notice what is needed. To allow what is needed to act on me. When do I need to reside in stillness and contemplate? And when do I need to get up off my ass and do whatever is needed to be done in terms of physical work or engagement with others or confrontation with others? I'm not interested in ranking one type of action over the other. When do I reside in that location of stillness and contemplation? When do I draw in? When do I allow myself to touch my innermost heart to know deeply who I am? And when do I give expression to that? When do I give, when do I give life to that? When do I set that free and let it move? So for all of us, that's our practice. We come to a point and then we move forth. And then we come to a point and move forth. So just as we end, I'd like us to have the courage to think that there's even a ninth step to the path. So historically, traditionally, we have an eightfold path. It's a wonderful model. It's inspiring. It's clarifying. But there's a ninth piece to it. And that's the piece that we uniquely bring ourselves from out of our childhood, out of our struggles, out of all those times that we felt lost and overwhelmed. There's a courage and a strength and a vitality that keeps us moving. So what is our ninth step? Our ninth fold step? What do we uniquely bring to this wonderful experience we have where life comes through us 
and expresses through us. And whatever that is, let us celebrate it and enjoy it. And may we find prosperity as we get more in touch with who that person is that expresses and the way we express. And may that prosperity lead to freedom for ourselves and freedom for all. And may the merit, whatever the benefit is that we have generated by our sitting this evening, our considering right effort and right livelihood and the Eightfold Path and the 2,500-year tradition, may that benefit live in us and through us to others and help our world and give expression and give resonance to the, that ninth step that we are. So we'll sit for just a minute and I'll ring the bell and then we'll be finished for the evening. <laughs>